Mino Lion Media presents Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith. Bishop Marvin Sapp is one of the most celebrated gospel artists of his generation. Born and raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan, his life has not taken a direct route to singing stardom. A difficult childhood and personal tragedy shaped, molded, and guided him over troubled waters to the success his fans around the world have come to admire. Bishop Marvin Sapp, thank you so much for joining the conversation today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, and I'm excited. Well, I got to tell you, I have been... I don't say a fan very often. I'm not a fan kind of guy, but I have been a big fan of yours for a very long time. I've enjoyed your music. I have to be honest with you. I first really, you came into my vision, uh, never would have made it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 16 Um, years ago, 16 years ago. Yeah, and it was such a hit, and it was so big. In fact, my oldest boy, my older boy, would sing that song when he was one. Wow. Because I listened to it so much. (laughs) <laughs> so uh so it really uh has been impactful um but then i started reading more about you and you know about growing up in michigan right mm-hmm. born and raised there yeah born and raised uh tell me about kind of what your childhood was like uh back uh, in michigan well i mean you know i grew up in what we would call initially a you know a middle class home you know my father was an entrepreneur he you know owned the dry cleaners my mother worked at General Motors. Um, But, you know, just like most middle-class homes, especially, you know, urban homes, you know, my mother and father had a tumultuous relationship. And, you know, they ended up getting divorced when I was very, very young. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, it was hard because, you know, I was so used to having my dad around and then having to shift into a single family, a single parent home. And because my mom and dad didn't get along well, um, you know, my dad wanted to be around, but couldn't, you know, he, he fought to be around, but you know, it was just, it was just hard because him and his mother, him and my mom were just at each other. And my mother was a very hard person. Me and my brothers, we talk about it all the time, but, but we realize now the reason why she was so, so hard on us because we grew up in a, in a neighborhood where, you know, pimps were there and drugs were there. And, you know, she, she just wanted to make sure her sons were felony free. Um, so she was really, she's a hard woman, man. I just, <laughs> that's, I mean, we just had her, we had her 80th birthday three years ago and we all just stood up and said the same thing over and over and over again. She's like, we never said she loved us. Uh, she wasn't emotional. Uh, she wasn't a hugging type. She was just a hard woman, but we understand why now, you know, now that we're all in our fifties and stuff, we kind of see that she had to be that way in order to make sure that her boys, you know, didn't get caught up like all the rest of the boys in the neighborhood were. When you say hard, what do you mean by hard? I mean, she was hard. When I say hard, I mean like, you know, my mother's from, she's a Southern girl. She was born in Forest, Mississippi. Um, so she raised us like we were from the South. Like, even though we were in the hood, you know, I, the first time I ever had jelly out the store, this is this is crazy stuff. This probably ain't got to do with, with the question you asked, so I'm going to get back to it. I was 25 years old. We, we had gardens. We grew our food. So, I mean, like, you know, it was nothing. While everybody was playing basketball on the street, we was in the backyard shelling peas, you know, and on the back porch shelling bushels of peas or shucking corn or, you know, she would go to the butcher, but the slaughterhouse twice a year. And, you know, we had to bring in, you know, a half a cow that was sliced up and put it in the deep freezer. And, you know, I mean, you know, we knew 
you know, you had to be at home before them doggone, you know, streetlights came on. And we knew that if you didn't, you weren't in the house before the streetlights came on, there was going to be used. It was, it was going to be serious, like serious whoopings, serious beatings, however you want to slice it. And, you know, back then we was like, dang, this woman's wrong with her. She crazy. Um, <laughs> you know, my friends would be like, man, your mom don't let y'all do nothing. And it's like, you know, you <laughs> don't let nobody in my house. Nobody came into the house. You know what I'm saying? It was like, we just, wasn't no, you know, you just, she was hard, man. That's the best word to use. She's just a hard woman. And, uh, I had a grandfather like that, but my grandfather was like that. My guy, yeah. I would describe my grandfather. My grandfather loved us. Yeah. But he was hard. And the way he demonstrated his love was not always hugging and kissing or even saying, I love you. Yeah. The way he demonstrated his love was by providing by teaching and instructing and guiding. I mean, that's just, he's from the South. And it wasn't until my brother and I got big enough. I have a twin brother. It wasn't until we got big enough that we, and physically we could actually overpower him that we started hugging and kissing him. And it would drive him crazy. I mean, he's old school. Boys don't kiss boys and all that stuff. Right. We'd, we'd hug him and one of us would grab him from behind and the other guy would go kiss him. And, you know, we're too big. He couldn't really mess with us at the time, right? But I know what you're saying when you say that she was hard. And I, But I also realize now my grandfather no longer is with us. He lived a long life. But I also look back now, maybe you do this too. I look back at my childhood and say to myself, at the time, I felt like, wow, I wish my grandfather could be a little more of this, a little more of that. Yeah. And now that I look back, I realize that what he did and how he did it was extremely influential and impactful and has made me the man who I am today. Oh man, without question, without question. I, I mean, like, you know, my brother's not, my brother says something. He lives in Texas here with me. Uh, well, he was here before I was absolutely, but he went home maybe about, about six months ago and to visit mom and he visited her. And like, when he got ready to leave, she hugged him and kissed him. And he was like, man, I'm sitting up here. I'm 48 years old. I can't remember a day when mom hugged me and kissed me. And I'm like, wow, I don't remember it either. But again, just like you said, you look back over your life and you say to yourself, you know, they were raised a certain kind of way. I understand why they did what they did. And honestly, me and all of my brothers are extremely successful at what we do. Um, we've never been in trouble. And it, it didn't make sense to us then, but it makes sense to us now. But the flip side of that is this. With my son, every time he sees me, he hugs me and gives me a kiss. And he's like 28 years old. My daughters, you know, every time we get off the phone, we express we love each other. So what we did was we looked at what mom was and said, okay, they may have worked for us to get us where we are, but I don't know if that's going to work for the next generation. So, you know, we really, really flipped it. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm that emotional hugging kiss on your dad i'm that dude i mean no no mm, mm, mm. you see me you hug me kiss me all the time and uh you, i mean it's it's, it's great I, I love it you are speaking my language i think uh, affection is very important to me Absolutely. and i think uh now that listening to you i think a big reason why it is is because like for example i never we made my grandfather kiss my grandmother on her 50th wedding anniversary I'd never seen him kiss before. Wow. And um, I'd never seen him hug his children, my aunts and uncles. Mm -hmm. And so me, I'm like you. I'm very affectionate with my kids. Um, 
I kiss my kids all the time. Sometimes they don't want to be kissed, but you know, we hug and I love you. You don't get off the phone without saying I love you. There's no hanging up the phone. I'll call you right and back. They call me back. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. So uh, you and I have walked a similar path. Let me ask you about, um, you know, when you're young and you're growing up in this situation, when did the idea of entering ministry or music come into play? How did that happen? I grew up in church, man. One of the things that my mother and my father absolutely instilled in, in me and my brothers is, you know, really having a core value system. Uh, and that core value system was, was church. My father was an amazing singer. I mean, he was an amazing singer. And um, I can remember every third Sunday uh, when the male chorus would sing, we automatically knew that my father was going to have to leave. We just knew it. He, you know, he's a, we knew it. And when he would come out, man, he would just straight dump the house at the church I grew up at. And um, so I was always amazed and intrigued with, you know, number one, watching the people respond to his gift. That, that was the first thing. And then I was also always amazed and intrigued by how the people responded to our pastor, mm -hmm. uh, the Reverend W.L. Patterson, Willie Lonnie Patterson Jr. And um, so because of that, you know, because I was always intrigued and, and, and was like, man, you know, I want to be able to get that type of response, you know, from people in my life. I think, you know, people always talk about when they receive their call. I, I, I think I always knew that this is what, you know, my assignment was going to be even though I never thought that it would be a lifetime assignment. Mm. You know, I never imagined in my wildest imagination uh, 32 years ago that I would still be here doing this. Mm. You know, it was never, it was, it was not like in my plan. I just wanted to, you know, be a, a, a good ministry gift, a local ministry gift, but to be an international and all that kind of stuff that I never thought about that. But yeah, when I was a kid, man, I saw that and I was like, wow, you know, so, my mother had my brother and she would sit and hold him. Uh, my oldest brother who was six years older than me. He was sitting with his friends. So I would have to sit with dad in the choir stand, you know, <laughs> on that Sunday. Um, and uh, I was four years old and I knew the song. I, I knew the song. He sang just a closer walk with thee. And when they started singing that song, those men in the back, just a closer walk with thee. Just to close. And they were singing it and I was standing there. And then one Sunday when dad walked out there, I walked out and I stood next to him and I was singing the song, the lead while he was singing it. And he just put the mic down by my, um, by my mouth. And he's like, this old man singing, you know, like this, this little boy, goodness gracious. So at four years old, my voice really hasn't changed, which is strange. I tell people all the time, they don't want to believe it. But, um, at four years old, I started singing. And then, you know, my mother and father just really, you know, cultivated it, made sure I was in everybody's Tom Thumb wedding at the church, mm -hmm. three o'clock services. And then I started traveling at the age of 10. So, I mean, like it just it just evolved. And when I got older, I kind of knew that I was called to preach, but I really fought it. I mean, I really fought it. I mean, I, I tried to do any and everything not to do it. And, um, you know, you really can't fight. I mean, you just, at, at some point you really just got to give in. And I finally gave in. I think I was 22, 21, 22. And I said, okay, God, I got all this out of my system. Now 
I'm, 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 I appreciate you letting me live and <laughs> me in the process. So I'm going to go ahead and do it. And uh, the rest is history. I've been here all this time, 55 years. I'm even who's 32 years later. I'm 55. Well, oh my God, it's 34 years later. Yeah, 34 years later, I'm still here. And you say you got it out of your system. What did you get out of your system? Oh man, I was, you know, when my mother and father got divorced, I really. How old were you? I was nine. Okay. Nine to 10. And, 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 and when they got divorced by the age of 12, you know, I had really just got very, very rebellious. And when, when my mother and father were together, I was able to go to a Christian school or back, they would call it Catholic school, a parochial school back then. Yeah. They call it parochial school back then. (laughs) But when they got divorced, I had to go to the school across the street that was in the hood. So I got introduced to a lot of different things. You know, uh, the first time I smoked a joint, I was 12 years old because one of my best friend's father was like the local weed dealer. So we'd go to his house and, you know, weed was laying around everywhere. Like, you know, what was left, the residue, you know, where he separated the seeds and all that kind of stuff. See, folks don't know nothing about all that. But... (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, we, we would find the residue and we roll it up in papers and and we start smoking weed. I started smoking weed when I was twelve. Um, I started drinking at, at at sixteen and I snorted my first line of cocaine at eighteen in the basement of my job with my boss. Mm. And I was going to church. I was in church. I was still singing and doing all stuff, but I was wilding out. You know, one of my best friends, his father actually owned the local. Uh, uh, a liquor store mm. and uh, we were both in the high school band and uh, he had a, a coupe de ville a Cadillac <laughs> coupe de ville he, he was probably about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, and we would go by his father's um, liquor store every Friday before the football game and would upcharge all the liquor and put it in the trunk of his car and we would go to the school where the football game was and all the little white fellas and everybody would come up and they'd buy Boone's Farm and, uh, you know, Wild Irish Rolls. And they would buy, you know, Slits, Malt Liquor, you know, <laughs> OE, all that kind of stuff. And he would just add like a dollar or two so his father wouldn't lose money. And I'd help him with it. And he was like, hey, Mark, get what you want. So I would get like a pint of Christian Brothers or I would get some Hennessy back then, you know, just something, you know, or every now and then. You know, I would I would get some some Bacardi Dark Cognac, Bacardi Dark, uh, and and you know these are the types of things that I was doing when I was fifteen and sixteen years of age, but in church, going to church every Sunday, um, you know. So how did you how did you reconcile? I know you're young, you're a young man at the time, so young men you know do things differently and have different impulses. How did you reconcile? Because I grew up in church also, by the way. Right, right. How did you reconcile being such a loyal member of church and then outside of church doing what you're doing. I'm just and not I'm not passing judgment. I'm saying in your mind. Yeah. How did you reconcile that? Honestly, I didn't. I, you know, I was just out there wilding out. You know, I was like, you know, I could sing. I was talented. I was gifted. And, you know, I could go to church and sing and wreck the house and watch all the people doing what they was doing. And then, you know, you know, just when I was in the street, I was at the parties. I was smoking. I was drinking. I was doing my thing. And, you know, I, I knew it was wrong from a biblical standpoint. Uh, I knew that I was out of order. I knew that I was, you know, I ain't going to necessarily, necessarily say I was out of the will of God, but I was definitely carnal. 
in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. But shoot, at that point, I didn't care. I was like, you know, um, my house is, you know, in disarray, you know, and this is my outlet. This is what mm-hmm. I'm doing in order to, you know, feel good about what I wanted to feel good about and kind of trying to, you know, I guess dull the pain mm-hmm. um, that I was experiencing as a teenage boy, missing my dad, you know, seeing my mom date. I mean, just the whole piece. It was, and back then, of course, you know, we didn't talk about counseling and therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, that, w- that was not necessarily a taboo, but it was just not something that was brought up. Yeah, you in just didn't the, talk about it at all. Yeah, in the framework of, you know, the African-American family. We just dealt with it. And, and when, you got, when you acted out, you got a whooping, you know, and, and I acted out a lot. So, you know, I, I got whoopings daily. Join <laughs> <So. laughs> the club because I was out there with you. Let me ask you a question. I, I mean, I, I, I didn't, I've never had a drink of alcohol. I've never touched a drug. However, um, and I'm okay saying this, I got plenty of beatings oh, yeah. whoopings for being disobedient. You know, stupid stuff like, you know, I, you know, go take this somewhere and I decide I'm not going to do it, you know, or, you know, playing jokes with somebody, whatever. So I got plenty of beatings, uh, which is why I said I will never lay a hand to my kid because I told them I took enough beatings for everybody. So yeah, uh, I feel like I feel you right with everything. So, so when do you decide that this just isn't going to work? I got to change my life and do something different. When do you decide it? And what was it that helped you decide? That? Strangely enough, I, I, um, I changed churches mm-hmm. and uh, I was singing in a group uh, of of a lot of young people that was from the community um, called Creation, and and a few of them went to a Pentecostal church in the city, um, and I went to the church one rehearsal night. Me and one of my friends, uh, who was like a brother to me, and uh, I'm sitting up there and I'm looking at this choir at this choir at this church, and it's like fifty plus young people in the choir stand. And, you know, the church I went to, it was it was a large church, but we didn't have a lot of young people that were like in church like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting up here looking at all of these young people that's really like in church. And it amazed me to, to see that. And um, then I started hanging with them because what ended up happening was is they were different. Like if, if one of them was going bowling, all 50 of them was going bowling. <laughs> Um, it, it was like, I mean, if one of them had an event at their house or at the apartment, you know, it would be 50 of us in the apartment and they did stuff that was wholesome. Um, and I began to realize that that lifestyle that, you know, was attractive to me. I didn't have to do that, even though all of my friends were doing that. So I actually made a real commitment one day. Um, you know, to Christ and, and really decided to change my ways. However, when I made that commitment, um, because of my drug use, I believe, um, I ended up having seizures, mm. grand mal seizures to be exact. Mm. And I was diagnosed as an epileptic, epileptic. And I was taking like 900 milligrams a day of Dilantin, mm-hmm. um, because I would, fallout, of course, grandma seizures, you know, you don't remember who you are and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And um, 
I do believe that it was directly connected with my drug use and just me just going cold turkey and just saying I'm not doing this no more. Um, and 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 I told God that if He would heal me of this, um, I would absolutely commit every aspect of who I am to Him. My mother was tripping because I would take the pills because of how they made me feel. Yeah, you know, I couldn't drive, I couldn't work a job. I mean, and I was like 19 years old. Like you know, I'm like. If if this is how I have to live my life, I'd rather die. Especially now, since I've I'm, I really got it together. You know, I graduated from high school. I was in college. I was like, this 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 ain't how. This is not the will of God for my life. And uh, I eased myself off the medication, and um, I haven't had a seizure since then. But well, I was 21 when I had my last one. I just made a a serious commitment during those moments mm-hmm. of, 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 of my sickness to really just, you know, to give my life to Christ totally and completely. And when I did it, it just, everything really began to change for me. I mean, really it began to change. I became a, a happier young man. I got around positive influences. And strangely enough, I was talking to my oldest brother. Maybe he was, he was here visiting uh, maybe about two or th- about four or five months ago. And we were talking about all of his friends and how all of his friends are like senior vice presidents of this and, you know, general managers of that. And I started thinking about all the guys that I used to hang with. And one of them did 27 years in prison. The other one is on crack still. Another one is an alcoholic still. Another one did 17 years. And I was like, wow, out of all of the guys I used to run with, I'm the only one that made it out. Mm-hmm. I'm the only one. And, and all I can say is, man, I'm grateful to God. And I kind of feel like being around those positive influences that helped me pull away from the negative ones, because, you know, my five boys were, they were everything to me because we hung out from, you know, shoot, third grade all through high school Mm. and to get around other young people, uh, 40, 50 of them that were really committed to their relationship to Christ and really striving to live that life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it it really helped me. So in, an environment shift is is really what helped me change my life totally and completely. You know, it's interesting um, when you talk about it was resonating with me when you said that you were in the midst of your challenge, your health challenge, and said that you were going. You said to to God, basically, if you get me through this, I will make a change. I've had that moment for myself financially when I was a young guy living in New York, mm-hmm. where you know I had financial challenges. And I was in the midst of it. I mean, in the, the darkest dark of this financial challenge. And I said the same thing to God. I said, if you if you let me get through this, I will guarantee you I will not put myself in this situation again. I will not be as loose um, and as reckless and irresponsible financially as I have been as a young person. So I asked him and I, re- I really I don't remember, you know, even as a kid, I didn't ask God for things. Right. Um, but this is the time I remember. I really said to him, dear Lord, please, you got to help me here. I got on my knees and made that prayer to him. It was the middle of the day. I was living in New York City and went to bed. I was so exhausted mentally from the difficulty I was facing. I got up off my knees. I closed my blinds in the middle of the day and went to sleep just like it was midnight. And when I woke up, I just felt different. I felt like I had this communication. I'd had this, you know, 
And I always had a, I always have had a relationship with God, but I felt like this became even more intimate and it happened. It, you know, he blessed me. And for those who are doubters or whatever, you can have your own belief. But for me, I'm a believer. Yeah. And I feel like he blessed me about, about three or four weeks later, I had a huge financial blessing come out of nowhere, just out of nowhere. And it was him. I swear to this day, it was him saying, I heard you, Ian. I'm going to do this for you. And I have honored that commitment to the point people think I'm conservative financially. But I but I promised him I would never go back to where I was. So I am very you know careful. Ian, I understand because I can remember when my wife was alive, uh, when we first got married, we had horrible credit. I'm not going to say we. I had horrible credit. <laughs> she had all right credit, but my credit was like, oh my God. Because again, growing up, my mother, you know, we paid bills when you got the final notice. You know, That's so right. I'm thinking, I'm like, you know, when when my when I got married, my wife was paying bills on time. I was like, what the heck are you doing? I'm like, you know, she like, I, I gotta pay the bill. It's first of month. I said, you don't pay the bill on the first of month. You gotta wait. You wait till the 15th. You wait till the last final day. You know, and then you pay it that day, or you you don't even pay it all. You make arrangements. <laughs> so that's how I was trained. But man, and then we got our good credit, and then we did something really stupid. I never forget. I had we had twenty four maxed out credit cards. Twenty four. It was the most miserable experience of my life. We had twenty four maxed out credit cards, and you know, I come from a, a household. Shoot, my mother. I don't know. She may have filed bankruptcy twice. I'm not even sure, but I knew she filed it once. Mm -hmm. And my mentality was, well, let's just file bankruptcy. And she's like, nope, we're not going to do that. I said, we're not going to file bankruptcy. She said, no, we're not going to file bankruptcy. Uh, we got in this and we're going to get out of it. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty popular at this particular point in time. So for 16 months, I traveled between 20 and 24 days a month. For 16 months, I was going, my kids were young, but for 16 months, because she was doing all my booking, I was on the road between 20 and 24 days a month. Mm -hmm. And every time I came home, she'd clip a credit card, a clip two. We paid this all, we paid it all. And that taught me one thing. It taught me I never want to be in a position ever again where I have to work to pay bills. Oh. If I'm working to pay bills, I so right now, you talking about conservative? My kids talk about me so bad now. He's like, Dad, you don't spend any money. <laughs> I'm like, I don't care what y'all say because you never know. You never know what's going to happen. You know, I need to make sure that I have enough money in my accounts so that if anything should happen to me and I need to take off a year or two years, I can sit at home and recuperate without issue. And I said, and that's how I lived my life since then. So I get it. Once yeah. you get out of that that hole, I don't know if there's any. That's a sickness that I don't wish upon anybody. I mean, just being buried in debt. And the mental part of it, the, the, the right, the continual thinking that I can never get out of this because I owe so much and I only make so much. How am I going to live and still pay the bills off? Then you look at the interest rates. They're killing on the interest rates. At 22 point something percent. It was ridiculous. And I'm sitting up here like, Lord, how did we get into this? And I'm coming home mad because I'm like, you know, I'm sending home all this money 
and and I'm coming home thinking that I should be able to go buy a pair of shoes or get a suit, and she ain't no money. What you mean ain't no money? I, I paid off this credit card. You, you taking all the, I told you this was what he was going to do. And she said, but honey, once we get out of this, we're never going to get back in it again. And and it, it taught me. I was like, no, 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 no. So now I have two credit cards and they're both American Express. And if I can't pay them at the end of the month, I don't use them because I don't want that stress. I'm telling you, I'm like, Mm-mm, never again. I'm never going back in this. Again. Oh, my goodness. So you listen, you talk about how you became popular and successful. Is it fair to say that never would have made it is the biggest that you've had? I mean, is it, you know, as far as. Without question. I mean, I mean, never would have made it. Never would have made. First off, let me tell you a quick story about this song. Yeah. I wasn't going to record it. Never would have made it happened in a worship service uh, the Sunday after I buried my dad. Mm. It was just a spontaneous song. Honestly, I was standing up in my pulpit at my church and I, I shouldn't have even been up there. To be honest with you, because I buried my dad on a Thursday. I should have took off. I'm thinking I'm strong enough to handle it. I walk into church and I fall apart mm. and I'm, I'm crying tears. And then I just started singing these words. I never would have made it. I never could have made it without you. I'd have lost it all. But now I see how you've been there for me. And after this, I'm going to be stronger. I'm going to be wise. I'm going to be better. And, and, and it just happened in the worship experience. Wait, wait, hold on. It just, those words just came to you? Yeah, that's how it happened. They it weren't did. written down? No, it just happened in church like that. My brother, my oldest brother who took care of my dad, came down the aisle. I, he didn't cry. He never had any emotion during the whole time my father was sick. And my brother came down the aisle with his hands lifted and just fell on the altar in tears. So we used to do like three services. So I sang it again at the next service, sang it again. And and it, it just really just dismantled the church. So my wife, I was in the process of working on my last record on, on the Verity label. And my wife was like, you got to record this song. And I'm like, what song? She said, that never would have made a song. I said, that's not a song. <laughs> and she said, yes, it is. I said, no, it's not. I said, you know, I, I do music. It's not a song. It's, it's, it's like a chant. It's not a whole song. I said, it's never would have, never could have, stronger, wiser, better. That's not a song. She said, honey, I'm telling you, this is your song. This is it. This is the one you've been looking for. And I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't do music. You know, you're a professor. I let you manage my career, but let me do the music thing because I'm going to do it. So I used to do something real stupid. I would go out of town during the week of my recordings and I would do revivals. My producers would be livid because I'm preaching, hollering, all this kind of stuff. And then I'd come back that Friday and do the live recording. So I came in on that Friday and uh, my producer, Aaron Lindsay, says to me, he says, yeah, Lynn tells me you got a song. And I was like, man, I don't know why she told you this. It's not a song. I'm telling you. And uh, she's like, it is. You need to let him hear it. So I sang it. And Aaron was like, hey, man, I really think I really think you should do this. And I said, no, I'm not doing it. And so my wife, who managed me, she said, I'm overruling you. Um, You're going to do the song. You need to figure out a way to make it work. Hmm. So what I did was, if you know anything about music business, you know that usually you never put your hit at the end of the record Mm -hmm. because people never listen down that far. Mm -hmm. What I did was, is to appease her, I put it in a medley of songs. That's what I did. So it ended up being like like 12 of 13 or uh, uh, maybe 11 or 12 or something. It's it's way down at the end of the record. Well, growing up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, we didn't have R&B radio. Mm. When we did have it, it was dawn to dusk. Yeah. So 
for a year, I didn't know that Never Would Have Made It was a hit. I just knew it was a song that people enjoy. I get a phone call from my record company. They tell me that Never Would Have Made It is about to become the number one R&B, hip-hop, and gospel song in the country. And I'm like, huh? (laughs) And they're like, yeah, you got to get on the plane tomorrow and go shoot a video for the song because BET wants to debut it next week as the number one hip-hop, R&B, and gospel song. I catch a plane to Birmingham, Alabama the next morning. We shoot a video in 24 hours. They edit it in another 24 hours and send it to BET. And that's when I found out that Never Would Have Made It was a big song. Because I was like, I never knew. I just, But, I mean, it's amazing to me that how something so simple can be so impactful. And what happened is, is I began to realize that the reason why I never would have made it after selling millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of records and streaming billions upon billions upon billions, I realized that the reason why the song has resonated and has had the life that it's had some 16 years later is still one of the top songs streamed and all that because all of us have had never would have made it moments. And the record, man, I, I, I don't think... I don't think that I will ever have. Nah, I could say this. I will never have a record that has the level. Of, never would have made it held the number one slot for 48 weeks. Mm. It's only 52 weeks in a year. It is the longest running number one single in the history of music across musical genres. Nobody has ever done it. Michael Jackson. Elton John, Whitney Houston, nobody's ever held number one as long as Never Would Have Made It in any genre. So is it the biggest song that I have? Yes. Do I think it's the biggest, will be the biggest song that I will ever have? Yes. Because now it's still like, it's the hottest song in the club right now. <laughs> you know, they, uh, uh, DJ Cali that sampled it. Uh, put it in the record. Um, <laughs> Yeezy has sampled it. It's on Carter Five. Jay Z has sampled it. I mean, well, listen. The beauty of the song. I love music, by the way. The beauty of the song is first the lyrics. See, I think music has gotten away from lyrics. Oh, absolutely. It's so much about production now in the studio, but the lyrics that can resonate. And kind of what I say, get into your bone marrow. There's mm-hmm. certain lyrics that just penetrate you, they get into your bones. When I first heard it, I was just like, I just couldn't stop listening to it. Because as you said, all of us, I don't care how successful we are, how rich or poor, whatever, every race, we've all had those moments in our lives where we just couldn't have made it had not somebody or something been there or helped us through it, period. Absolutely. Absolutely. So first it's the lyrics. Then it's just the simplicity of it. It's not... You know, you're not trying to do too much. You're just speaking your truth. Yeah. And I just think that that's what makes it such a beautiful song and why every time I hear it and I still listen to it and I use it for different moments. Like, you know, for me, it's almost like it's, it's anthemic for me. Right. Right. When I need. And I think that that is what has made it such a hit for so many people. And by the way, everyone loves it. It's not just black people, not just gospel, R&B. It resonates 
no matter what kind of music you like, you can like country western. This song is just beautiful music, and it's a beautiful song, and it's just beautifully written. And of course, the way you perform it, it's you know, it's also how you perform a song too, right? right. How you deliver the song, and the way you deliver the song is just amazing. And I got to ask you, so you become this huge star. What changes in your life when that happened? Literally, what what happens? <laughs> It took me 18 years to get a hit. Okay. So, you know, I like, like a crossover hit. Right. I've always had major success in my genre. Uh, but, but to have, you know, that crossover universal, you know, that, that catapults you to a whole nother level. It's, it's funny because if you ask me what changed, of course your financial position changes. But nothing really else. And, and the reason being is because I had, how can I say this? The most successful seasons of my life always had trauma going on with them. Mm-hmm. So I never got the opportunity to really enjoy. Like, I didn't get the opportunity to really enjoy, never would have made it because my dad died. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my wife got sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she passed away. Mm-hmm. You know, all during this period. So and then having to readjust, recalibrate your life and trying to figure out how to, to be a single dad, mm-hmm. um, raising three children, 11, 13, and 16. Mm-hmm. Um, but the funniest thing is, you making me think about stuff I ain't thought about in a long time. <laughs> One of the funniest moments is when I won my BET award uh, for Never Would Have Made It. I'm like, this is great. You know, uh, I, I sang on the BET awards had a big orchestra. It was beautiful how things were done. Me and my wife went out there. Uh, we left the BT Awards. I got my BT Award in my hand. We catch a red eye back to Michigan. I'm studying saying to her, I can't believe, babe, I just won a BT Award. I just, this is amazing. Oh my God, this is just so amazing. And she's like, yeah, it's amazing, babe. I'm so proud of you. Da, 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 da. And we get off the plane. We get in the car. We're driving to the house. And I'm still just like, on cloud nine because we didn't slept this whole red eye oh my god you know this is just so great oh my god i can't believe this and we pull up to the house and get in the garage and she said yeah babe it's amazing and she grabs the award and she says to me um could you roll that garbage can out to the um the, <laughs> the, gar- the garbage truck is on its way up the street right now so i was like well i guess this is over <laughs> it's, it's like this is over this so, you know, it was like, well, back to normalcy. So I'm, I'm grateful. I, 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 I tell you that story because, you know, having her in my life kept me humble. Mm. I mean, it, it just, you know, okay, this, this is good, but this is what you have achieved. It's not who you are. Mm. You're still a husband and a father who rolls garbage cans to the doggone side of the road. Mm. Uh, Never forget that while mm-hmm. you're being celebrated as a gospel music icon, mm-hmm. understand that your first assignment is to be my husband, the father of our children, and you know, all this other stuff. Well, your spouse and your family, for me too, by the way, can always keep you grounded and always remind you of what's most important and who you are. And I think, you know. It's been really good for me, by the way, because I'm the same way. I come home off book tour. I'm on tour for my new book, Plant Power. I got home feeling great and didn't even get a chance to unpack my bags. Was right 
pick up the kids, do this, do that. You know, it's right. You know, and I think that has kept me grounded over the years to have that kind of counterbalance. Before we go, um, I want to be respectful of your time. A biopic. Yeah, man. TV one coming yeah. out in the summer, August. Yeah. August 21st. Yeah. Jeez. And I'm the producer on it and co-writer. And, you know, Dr. Ian stuff. I tell people all the time, you know, I've turned down so many opportunities, especially when it comes to this social media slash, um, how can I, uh, this, 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 this people following your life. Mm-hmm. So many different companies and stuff have come to me, wanted me to do, you know, reality shows, you know, especially dating ones. My God, everybody, <laughs> wants, I'm like, Jesus Christ, everybody wants you to, to put, put all, and I used to tell them and say, don't nobody want to see their man of God dating on television. I want you to, <laughs> nobody want to see their pastor posted up with no chick on TV. Let me just be clear with y'all, okay? <laughs> but they would call me so much and I would turn down so many opportunities. And honestly, I turned this one down initially. Wow. And because even though I have popularity, even though I have notoriety, even though I have celebrity, I'm extremely guarded. Yeah. But after praying about it, I felt like this, this is ministry too, because yep, people yep. are going to get the opportunity to see a side of me that they never saw, you know, cause I was very transparent. I talked about my alcohol use. I talked about my drug use. I deal with the epilepsy. I deal with the total and blatant disrespect that I had, you know, for my mother's boyfriend, the disrespect I had for her, um, you know, how my father would check me because of the stuff that I did. I was extremely vulnerable in the writing of this particular script. And um, I really think that when people see where I've come from, um, what I went through to get to where I am today, people are going to get, they're going to see something that they're going to say, wow, Mm. uh, he never should have made it, you know, and, you know, and, uh, but but because of the things that I had to endure then, that's what makes me stronger, wiser, and better now. Well, I got to tell you, I'm looking forward to it. Legions of fans around the world are going to be looking forward to it. Russ, Russ Parr. Russ, Russ Parr. Parr. Russ Parr is directing it. Mm-hmm. Um, Chaz Shepard mm-hmm. is playing the lead. Uh, Marvin Sapp. And, um, did you help pick the lead? I did. I okay. did. I helped pick the lead. And I can't think of Amber's last name. Uh, I just know Amber. She played Amber Anderson. Amber Amber Anderson. She played on uh, Power Two and and a few other Manifest things. Evil. Manifest <laughs> Evil, and she's playing uh, Melinda, and um, it's a love story to be honest with you too. Um, but I ain't gonna go into any more because I want people. To be yeah, ready. we want people to to, <laughs> to to watch it for sure. Listen, before I go, I do something called Doctor Ian's Random Seven. Okay. I ask you very quick seven quick questions. You have quick answers, and your answers are what they are. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. If you were not a gospel artist, musician, and bishop, what would Marvin Sapp be doing? I'd be a teacher, which I'm still doing, but I would be a teacher teaching Bible in a Christian school because that's what I went to college for. If you um, had a chance to sit down and have dinner with someone you've never met, someone alive or deceased, who would that be and why? Wow. I would want to sit and talk to Dr. Martin Luther King. Hmm. And I would want to ask him about, you know, certain aspects of how he came up with certain messages. 
What was his thought process? How did he approach scripture? How did he view it? You know, of course, we, we talk about his famous speeches, but I want to talk about his ability to articulate scripture and how he approached it. That's what I would ask. What does Marvin Sapp own that's really expensive and he doesn't feel guilty about? <laughs> so much stuff I own. I'm, I don't feel guilty about anything I bought. <laughs> I think that's just, I don't feel guilty about anything that I've purchased. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I'm an I'm a, I'm a avid watch collector, uh, but timepieces. So I own- What's your favorite? I have a, uh, an AP that I bought for my 50th birthday. That's my favorite, but I have two of those. I have a couple of 45 millimeter Rolexes, one platinum, one uh, gold. So, I mean, like I collect watches, um, but, 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 but my real passion, to be honest with you, is ink pens. Oh, yes, sir. I've been, collecting, I've been collecting expensive writing instruments for 30 years. My kids just bought me uh, the, uh, the Disney um, uh, for my, my, my birthday, my 55th birthday. My kids just bought me the Disney, uh, the Disney pen from, from Mont Blanc. So, I mean, like I, I have the Hemingway, uh, their first writer's edition. So I've been collecting for years. So I, you know, I have a strange that now that those things, those are my, yeah, I can say that's my guilty pleasure. One day, I'd love to see your pens and your watches. I'm a watch guy too, so I'd love to see your collection for sure. I got, I got a pet tape for for Lee. I listen. I'm a watch guy. <laughs> what makes Marvin Sapp really angry? What makes Marvin Sapp really angry? Inconsistency. Um, in my own life, uh, I think when I'm inconsistent, it frustrates the heck out of me, and I can be that. I can be inconsistent. I can be uh, an individual who will put stuff off until it all piles up and then I have to rush and get it done. So inconsistency really makes me angry. Who have you always had a crush on and why? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Let's see. Who have I always had a crush on? Everybody's had a crush on Halle Berry. (laughs) So, I mean, like, you know, I've had a crush on, on Halle Berry, but honestly, I've had a crush on Sanaa Latham. I think she's amazingly beautiful. I think that she's smart. Um, watching her, you know, the movies that she does. I mean, she she has a a wide range of being able to do what she does, and her smile is amazing. Define success for me. Being the best dad I can possibly be. Lastly, a hundred years from now. Someone finds an old article written about Marvin Sapp, Bishop Marvin Sapp. What do you want that article to say? I want them to say that I died empty, that I died accomplishing everything that I desired to accomplish, not for the purpose of me, the individual, to receive acclaim or, or anything like that. But, you know, I, I just want to leave this earth with no regrets. I don't want to look back over my life and say, man, I wish I had did this. Oh, I wish I could have did that. I'm going to make sure that I do everything that I desire to do so that when it's all said and done and I take my last breath and when they read that article, they can say, man, he left an impact. That's what's most important. Bishop Marvin Sapp, gospel icon, <laughs> ministerial emperor, 
<laughs> and soon to be the centerpiece of a biopic on TV One coming yeah. this summer in August. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. Thank you, Dr. Ian. I appreciate you, man. Thanks so much for listening to the conversation today. I hope it has a positive impact on your life. Of course, you can reach out to me and follow me on social. On Twitter, it's at Dr. Ian Smith, D-R-I-A-N Smith. On Instagram, at Dr. Ian Smith. Make sure you spell the doctor out, I-A-N Smith. And on Facebook, Dr. Ian Smith. And of course, if you want to transform your life starting in eight weeks, pick up a copy of my new book. It's called Burn, Melt, Shred. And join our Facebook group by the same name, Burn, Melt, Shred. I do Facebook live sessions, Zoom sessions, all free to help you transform your life. And make sure you check out my website, www.dreiansmith.com. Make sure you spell out the doctor. Take care. Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith is hosted by Dr. Ian Smith, associate producer Ariel Mancibo, executive producers Ian Smith and Ken Johnson. Find the Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, or on IG at Dr. Ian Smith. Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith is a Mean Old Line Media production.